0: Good morning again. Thank you so much for being here and choosing to worship the Lord together. It's wonderful, again, to have Shermans with us if you were seated over here. Eleven years now? Has it been? Already. Wow. Um, still teaching systematic theology, critical thinking, some language, the all the above and uh, just staying faithful, persevering, both of you. Praise God for that. Thanks for being here. I know you're just traveling through the area to choose to be with us. Today is an honor for us. We're so glad. I have another surprise today. Um, where's Michael and Jessica seated? There you are. I'm going to have you stand. I'm going to have you walk all the way to the front because the Dunlops were with us digitally for our World Mission Sunday. Come on up, Jessica. You're okay. I just want those who were not able to see when you zoomed into that class to see you are, because we sent the whole church your missions video, and uh, we want you to to see the Dunlops. We look forward to supporting them on their way to France, God willing, about a year from now, and um, I just wanted to to make sure that everyone was able to get an optic of who we've been praying for a chance to, to see you both. We're so glad that you chose to be here. It was a complete surprise to me. I had no idea. If I missed an email, I'm sorry. I uh, They're just traveling through the area. I wonder if you would be pleased just to ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word this morning as we continue, okay?
1: Good to be with you all, and uh look forward to coming in to know some of you after the service. Please come by and grab a prayer card from us, too, if you don't have one. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, so um, grateful and privileged to be here, to be able to to open your word together, um, to hear um, your word um, preached and proclaimed to us. God, we're grateful for for Jesus Christ and for the salvation that we have in him and that that unites us all together, and and we're so grateful that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. God, um, help us um, this morning as we open the word as we are uh, prone to be distracted by um, the things in our lives that that distract us by the things coming up um, this day, this this upcoming week, um, that we'll be able to effectively uh, push those things aside in our minds and focus our attention on you, focus our attention on um, um, the word that you have revealed to us and that is being proclaimed to us, and that that through it, um, God will be Strengthened, will be edified, will be challenged, and that we will grow um, more and more like your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in His name. Amen. Amen.
0: It's always wonderful to have visible representations of of your answers, God's answers to prayer, to your prayers. Um, for those of you who are guests, we. Um, We love to proclaim the gospel, and the Lord Jesus gave, it, gave us an order as a local church as to how that's supposed to happen. We're supposed to saturate our area, and then we're supposed to work with other like-minded churches to make sure that our regions just beyond us are saturated with the gospel, and then we're supposed to work with those churches and around us and regions around us to send more Proclaimers of the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. And to have the uh, Shermans and Dunlops with us today is a great reminder to us of that process. Amen. Uh, so many churches um, do their best to kind of reach their area, and then they, their focus goes immediately to overseas. And we miss that middle part of. Essential gospel networking together. And when we miss that essential middle part, we kind of see what's happening in our country now. Uh, Everyone feels that our country had a chance, was saturated with the gospel, missed its chance, and now is just inevitably falling apart. Well, we're not here, right, to pledge allegiance just to a flag. We're here as gospel proclaimers in this local church. And as long as the church exists and mentor, it still exists under the Pledge of Allegiance of the Great Commission. And we are to prayerfully and intentionally and passionately seek people in the natural rhythms of our life who need Jesus, develop relationships with them, give them the gospel plant churches and work with other established churches and church plants to do, help them do the same in their area and network regionally and the more we can get together to work regionally and nationally together we can still send more and more folks to the various parts of the world for the gospel's sake are you still like interested in that I'm assuming because you're here you are I just kind of got to ask once in a while, Uh, because if we're not, then we're just kind of coming here on Sunday mornings, just kind of going through the motions, and we're here as worshipers, but we are disciple-making worshipers, and we live with an eternal why, 24-7-365, and if you're a guest, and you want to know what kind of a church we are, I think maybe This morning you've gotten a little bit better glimpse of, if you stay here, what you get yourself into. We don't have any time to waste. We've got a lot of work to do. And we encourage you to be part of that work in every facet possible. Um, I have um, this sermon this morning reserved in my iPad With the title The Last Sermon on Job. That's what it says at the top of my screen. You may have thought the last time I preached two weeks ago, that was the last sermon on Job. For those of you who are guests, we finished the content of Job three weeks ago. Two weeks ago, we gave some theological observations and conclusions and some practical applications from those theological observations. This morning, I just want to share with you a final thought on the book of Job in relationship to one phrase that Job speaks in the latter part of the book that has caused me to muse, uh, to meditate, to continue to study, re-read a significant portion of this book to come to a conclusion in my own heart, in my own mind of what Job meant when he said this phrase because sometimes you endure things individually and familially and as a church family that are of, uh, superlative difficulty like life's most difficult things to endure. We know Job's experience is calamity. But when he comes to chapter 42 and the last part of verse 3, and he said, Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. The whole verse says, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And then Job says, God asks that question, and Job says, Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Now if you hold your finger there and go over to Psalm 131, David, the psalmist, uses a similar phrase in Psalm 131 that we'll look at in just a moment together. But I want to talk this morning about things too wonderful for us where we're left considering God, who I really believe is the main character of the book of Job, and how wonderful he is, where we're left considering what we looked at in James 5.11 and what James said about the perseverance of Job and that the end of the Lord is mercy and compassion. All that he does in allowing command calamity, choosing calamity for us. Our rationale as we pursue an understanding of God is, is for us to understand that regardless what he does or doesn't do, that he will always immutably be merciful and compassionate. That's the end of the Lord. And remember what we said about the word, the Greek word end in James 5.11. It's the Greek word telos. The purpose of the Lord is merciful and compassionate. The purpose of the Lord is merciful and it's compassionate. So I'm going to talk to you this morning about how Tim Potter, the human being, wrestles himself through his own calamity and helping the flock wrestle through their calamity, how we wrestle ourselves to that conclusion, which is immutably so, a conclusion, that no matter what God does or doesn't do, he always is merciful and compassionate. We must wrestle ourselves there. If not, we will drown. And live, our, live out our days in discouragement and really hopelessness. I read a story some time ago about a kid that was taking a final exam in college at the end of the first semester. He didn't know any answer to any of the questions on the test. He wrote at the top of his test at the end of that hour Only God knows the answer to these questions. Merry Christmas. <laughs> few days later the test was mailed back to him by the teacher and she wrote at the top right underneath his statement God gets a hundred you get zero happy new year (laughs) we concluded the book of Job and it included some 80 questions that God had addressed to Job, and Job didn't have an answer for any of them. And he humbly states in chapter 42 and verse 3, yep, it's just too wonderful for me. It's too wonderful for him to know. It's beyond his reach. Psalm 131, verses 1 through 3, David says, O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty. Nor do I involve myself in great matters or things too difficult for me. Your translation may say things like, these things are too high for me, or the ESV says too marvelous for me. So David, in a context of worship, sings he doesn't involve himself with these mysteries. One translation says that David does not occupy himself with the things too marvelous for him to comprehend. The word, in some contexts, just simply means in the Old Testament to walk, to take a stroll. But in the context of Psalm 131, in Job chapter 42 and verse 3, it means to strut. To arrogantly strut or to parade. So David is literally saying, neither do I strut around in great matters or in things too lofty for me, too marvelous for me, too difficult for me, too wonderful for me. With the same mindset, Job humbly realizes that the infinite purposes and intentions of God are beyond his understanding and always will be. He also rests his heart in embracing and believing what has been revealed about God that he can understand. He realizes that's enough to sustain him. We realize the same about God's word as well, don't we? At this point, it's much more peaceful to Job to know what we know about God. The conclusion or the end, though, of all of God's wonderful ways, both those that we know and we don't know, is mercy and compassion. I think of the infinite and eternal decrees of God He decreed to create, he decreed to permit the fall, to redeem man back to himself, and to enjoy redeemed men forever in an eternal state among other decrees. It's not difficult to see the end of the Lord as merciful and compassionate even in the fulfillment of his decrees. We may not fully comprehend the divine detail of these decrees. They're too wonderful for us. We don't strut or parade there. But yet the end of these decrees is mercy and compassion. We're dispensationalists here at Grace. Whether you believe in seven or just three, law, grace, and kingdom, the end of the Lord is revealed in your theology as well each dispensation is marked with new revelation from god the failure of men the judgment of god on that failure and the mercy of god that accompanies that judgment which then gives birth to more sufficient and compassionate revelation from god to man for the next age along with more opportunity for mankind to look to the lord for south sal- for the salvation of their souls if you're not a dispensationalist you can see the same even among the covenants of god in scripture The end of the Lord is always merciful and compassionate. Friends, there are things that happen to all of us, both good and very calamitous, that have no explanation. We easily accept the good without much thought and with a lot of rejoicing to the Lord. The difficulty is harder to process. It's harder to accept because we know we're the children of God and yet he sends or allows difficult things to happen to us. It's hard for us to accept hard things because they're just hard. But yet the end of the Lord, regardless of the degree of hardship, is still compassionate and merciful. And if you can't wrap your head around that, then that's okay because you don't want to strut or parade there anyway, right? In pastoral ministry, you know, we see and deal with the consequences of the ugliest and the darkest realities of the human condition. If you're a trauma doctor or nurse, you've seen indescribable mutilations of the human body. I have a close friend that was involved in a most horrible accident years ago. He was about 90% cut in half in a construction accident as he was laying asphalt. He was life-flighted. And when the trauma doctor saw him, he'd not seen anything like it. He can find no medical solution to save his life when a situation was described to me by his wife on the phone the doctor had come out and said we've tried to do something but we can do nothing and we're just waiting for him to die she described later that they kept waiting for him to die and she told me he just wouldn't die So here's her husband in literally two pieces, just connected by some strands, and he wouldn't die. All the doctors could do is to take a big old screen, gather that which was there, put it together, sew the screen, see what would happen. He did not die. He's still with us recently diagnosed with a cancer that has developed out of the scar tissue from that first time they literally sewed him back together. And he's moment to moment now as to when he'll depart this life, but God used that tragedy to bring he and his wife to Christ. We baptized this man right here in the front of the auditorium when he was first able to get back to church in a wheelchair. I speak to this couple as often as I possibly can. They've never been able to make it back to church, but they live stream every Sunday for years. He's loved and been loved by his faithful wife. God's given him mercifully the opportunity to watch his children grow and his daughter just to graduate from college and be accepted into a PhD program at Ohio State University. He's allowed his wife to demonstrate to him the compassion and mercy of God to a woman who knew that her wifely experience would never be that which we understand as normal. Often I talk to his wife and And in tears, she says, I don't understand. Recently, when I found out about this cancer, but I know God's always good, and I trust him. I'm amazed at the years that God's given us. When they could have been shorter. Somehow, God's grace compels her to submit to the end of the Lord that he's always merciful, and he's always compassionate. As far as we know to this day, Metro Hospital's never seen a situation like his. As to the heart of pastoral ministry and the human condition, pastors are the earthly spiritual trauma doctors, if you will, of the soul. I can't repeat the darkest of what I've seen and heard, If I did, the auditorium would empty in minutes. I've ministered to so many who can't even speak because the hurt is so great. I've ministered to saints, the pastors here have, whose psyche has literally been altered by being victims of this fallen world's most heinous crimes. Some even inflicted upon them by their own family members or fellow church members some never really return to the way they once were some walk away were they ever saved in the first place if they can't recover from the darkest are they really saved folks I'm not going to strut or parade there. But God does. And I, I know His end is merciful and it's compassionate. And so if I'm pursuing godliness, then I seek to be merciful and compassionate as well. For every finite, unexplainable calamity that comes upon you, that comes upon us, there is unlimited divine mercy. And compassion from above. That is the telos of the Lord. Where sin abounds, grace abounds more. Much more. You might ask if God were a loving God, and this has been asked to me by people who are here and people who have walked away, if God were a loving God, a caring Father, would he allow such dark and devastating things to befall his little children? It's a good question. Maybe a necessary question. Job asked it. If you allow God's grace to press you to the end of understanding the end of the Lord, it remains a good question to answer. For by faith, we come to James' conclusion that the end of the Lord is mercy and compassion. Isaiah 53. It pleased the Lord to bring the greatest calamity known to humankind on his own son. It pleased the Lord to bruise our Savior. Why? Don't strut or parade there. It's too wonderful for us. It did please the Lord. And the end of Christ's death is mercy and compassion. And for us, the opportunity is the same as it was for the son to obey and to glorify the father. C.S. Lewis married a wife. I believe her name was Joy. Later in his life. Soon after they were married, she was struck with cancer. Lewis recounts having thoughts as Job did in Job chapter 10. He felt hunted down like a beast. He wondered why God created him in the first place. Lewis, like Job, would say, please, Lord, just let me live out my days and, and die in peace. And he asked the question as Job did in chapter 10 and verse 3, is it right for you to intend to oppress Lord he later writes I tried to put some of these thoughts to a friend this afternoon my friend reminded me that the same thing seems to have happened to Christ Christ said why hast thou forsaken me C.S. Lewis continues, does that make it easier to understand? Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe that God is far different than what I thought him to be. The question I am faced with is not, so, there is no God after all. Rather, it is so, this is what God's really like. Later, Lewis recounts that the thoughts that he was having during that dark time in his life were, quote, nothing but filth and nonsense. Nonetheless, the godly have these meditations. Job did not have the fullness of the scriptures as we do. Some still maintain these thoughts of God at times. And it's human to do so. If you go back and look on your own time at Job chapter 9 and 10, you'll see some 70 references to God that Job uses to describe his relationship with him. And these references would hold him as he continued to decline in his humanity for some seven months. All I can tell you, I have seen two Christians endure similar calamity of the darkest kind. I have seen two different responses. One seems to be by supernatural grace pressed to conclude that God's end is merciful and compassionate. The other doesn't and is spiritually, emotionally crippled. Who's saved? Who's not? It's too wonderful for me. And again, I won't involve myself with those things, but the telos of the Lord For both still remains immutably, unchangingly merciful and compassionate. I wonder if we can move into another lane of wonder for a moment. Let's think of something else that's too wonderful for us to fully comprehend. That is our unlimited inheritance in Christ. Forgiveness, mercy, and compassion is the end of the Lord for us in Christ, isn't it? Our sins, as many as the sand of the sea that are incalculable, caused indescribable pain to our Savior. I don't know about you, but my chest actually hurts if I think about the sin of my past and my present too long. Anxiety presses heavy upon my heart if I but for a moment begin to contemplate the life that I would have led if I would have never come to know Christ. Contemplating my own sin is too heavy for me. What my sin did to Christ just devastated me the day I was born again. Equally devastating but thrilling was the day I realized he gave me his life for mine, When you truly understand the gospel of Christ, it will stop you dead in your tracks. God's grace will paralyze your soul with the guilt of your own sin, then mesmerize your soul at the same time with the mercy and compassion of God in Christ as you realize God offers complete and divine forgiveness for the whole of your sin that paralyzed you and left you guilty before him at the cross of Christ. The end of the Lord truly is merciful and compassionate. And those virtues were given. And that person has a name, and it's Christ Jesus. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. This too is too wonderful for me. I cannot comprehend such mercy and compassion. We sing to him, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me? Who him to death pursued amazing love? How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Tis mystery all. The immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design? In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. Tis mercy all. Let earth adore. Let angel minds inquire no more. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? These things are too wonderful for us. We dare not strut around or parade in this mystery. We have bowed to this mystery of the gospel by faith. The faith and repentance gifted to us the moment we believed. I cannot explain the fullness of its blessings, but its end is mercy and compassion. The incomprehensibility of this faith reality is what Paul called the mystery of the gospel. There were things Paul wrote, Paul preached, and believed about the gospel of Christ. It was all enough for faith to come by hearing and hearing by the word of God, and yet there were things too wonderful for him to even understand in his earthly existence of this divine salvation. I'll ask you this morning, can you comprehend God's eternal choice of you? Can you fully meditate upon the reality that you are sitting here this morning in Christ as a co-heir with the Son of the Living God? Can we wrap our minds around the sealing of the Spirit of God into the day of our redemption? Can you grasp union with Christ that was gifted to you by the baptism of the Holy Spirit the moment that you're born again? Do you fully understand the earnest of the Spirit of God? These are just a few of what we call the subjective realities of our conversion experience. These are realities performed upon us the moment we're born again. Things God did for us, we could never do for ourselves with eternal value to them. Not only are they blessed realities of our conversion experience, they're not even fully understood by us the moment we're saved, nor for some time in our lifetime. But yet, there's still the personal realities of the gospel for those who would be saved. I will not parade or strut myself upon these realities, too wonderful for me. By faith alone, they're embraced. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2 9, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them. That love him of the things too wonderful for me. I wonder what you would think of Job's craving for a mediator, a go-between, a savior, a goel, as the Hebrew tongue would state it. Job chapter nine, verses thirty-two to thirty-five. Would you flip back? Bear with me, we sang of these rich realities. Now, for those of you that know your word well, I don't know that there is one explicit messianic reference in the book of Job. We can have a discussion about that for sure, because I know for those of you that know your Bible well, especially the book of Job, you can think of two explicitly, and we're going to look at both, But Job cries out for someone here that he did not feel like he had in the midst of his conflict. Job chapter 9 and verse 32. For he is not a man that, as I am, that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. Verse 33. There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both go over with me to Job chapter 19 and let's look at verse 23 a little bit more clearly in the middle days of enduring his calamity oh that my words were written verse 23 oh that they were inscribed in a book that with an iron stylus and lead they were engraved into the rock forever. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. I go well and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. And even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. says i know that my redeemer lives he's speaking of a kinsman a kinsman redeemer who had the responsibility of redeeming his kinsman's lost opportunities <laughs> favorite author of mine said it is as if job is saying everyone else has a kinsman but me the person who is forced to become a slave because a financial disaster has a kinsman. When debts overwhelm him, a redeemer buys his homestead for him so that his family can live. When a family member dies without an heir, the kinsman redeems his name by marrying his widow and rearing a son in his name. If another man kills a man, the redeemer has the responsibility to avenge the blood of the victim by pursuing the killer at this time. Job's lost everything. Job's complaint is that no one has come to be his goel. No one has come to be his his redeemer. However, Job's faith launches out and declares that Yahweh will provide a savior. He speaks of his kinsmen saying, at last he will take his stand on the earth. His kinsman redeemer will come to the earth. After his death, even after my skin is flayed, yet without my flesh I shall see God. After his body is destroyed in death, in the future life, he will see the one he worships and adores, the adorable one, the worshipful one, him whom my eyes shall see and not another. Job expects to see God in his future. It's simple faith from a sincere heart. And he's still in the darkest part of his calamity when he speaks those words. If this is a a reference to Christ in the book of Job, and I would believe that it is, There's not many other New Testament references to Job at all. The Lord Jesus, there's no inspired scripture where the Lord Jesus speaks of him in the Gospels. We looked at James chapter 5 and verse 11 and what it says, but there's plenty of other scriptures about the mediatorial work of Christ. We know what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 5, right? There's one God and one mediator between God and man, and it's the man Christ Jesus. He is your kinsman, redeemer, in a spiritual sense. He is the avenger of all wrong brought to your life. He is the only divine one that can heal the hurt of your soul, and by his grace, cause you to not only be healed personally, But restored in your relationship with Him. And as we saw with Job, even in your relationship to others, when there's no human explanation as to why we would walk with God and walk with men who have hurt us so much, the only explanation is we have a Savior. We have a Savior. He's the first and the last, the the Alpha and Omega, the author and finisher of our faith. He is the bishop of our souls, the fountain of living waters, the head of the church, the bright morning star, the the rose of Sharon, the chiefest among 10,000, and altogether lovely. Paul was so taken with Christ that he determined not to know anything among the Corinthian believers but Christ alone and Christ crucified. So we can say that the end of saving faith is a disposition of humility. And as I, as we walk through the varying degrees of calamity, we do so humbly being pressed by God, regardless of how dark the things have been that you've been inflicted with or that you're currently enduring, somehow, somehow, God's grace compels us to consider the example of our Savior who, for the joy set before him, endured the most graphic ugliness in human history to obey his Father. And when the grace of God through faith compels us to persevere and obey, although that obedience seems cold and just wrote up front, our hearts are warmed to know that the end of God is always merciful and compassionate. And if you're at the end of yourself trying to figure out what in the world is going on with you. At the end of yourself, let us find the end of the Lord. Heaven will tell the record. Heaven will tell the record. He's merciful and he's compassionate. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for our study in this wisdom literature that you preserve for our learning I don't think anyone in their right mind could feel confident standing up and preaching any part of your word except it be a boldness given by the spirit of God because the word of God is really being preached Lord I trust we have handled this text wisely and You are the the main character of this book. I've got to admit, I've had my own wrestlings through the study of this book, Lord. My own wrestlings with you. My own wrestlings with other believers around me. (laughs) Being left most of the time with unanswered questions or being asked questions I can't answer left to just be in silence. To wonder what your end is. I, I, I believe it to be divinely intentional for one author in the New Testament to declare to us, even if we end the book of Job with a question mark, about how or why you do things. Lord, James gave us a description of your purpose. The purpose of the Lord is always compassion and mercy. By faith, in the darkest of our hours, may we be pressed by God's grace To become more familiar with your compassion and your mercy as you govern sovereignly. As you oversee. Lovingly. May we be pressed to peace as we humble ourselves as Peter said under your mighty hand. And await your exalting in due time. We thank you, Lord, for our mediator, for our kinsman redeemer who settled the eternal things of consequence to us on the cross and for us the moment that we believed. We thank you, Lord, that that which remains somewhat unsettled in our hearts at times is settled in the court of heaven in Christ. we thank you, Lord, for his faithful mediatorial ministry to us personally and collectively as a church. For the Lord Jesus Christ is, our Savior is, the mercy and compassion of the Lord in his person and in his work. And we will know fully well that mercy and compassion when we see him face to face. The moment of our ascension from this earth when we meet him in the clouds. Maybe today. In Christ's name.